Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. Welcome to another episode of Burjo's Catchphrase <laughs> with your host, Baby John Burgess. <laughs> um, and Adam playing the role of Adriana Xenides. The role I was born to play. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, there's a natural resemblance. Mm. This is the final word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins with you to uh, talk another week in cricket where there wasn't any play, but that's all right. We're talking to Lawrence Booth, the editor of Wisdom. The good book comes out this week and we'll be going through uh, some of the detail of what's in it and what were the hot topics for the year that was uh, before the year to come. Uh, off the top, thanks everyone for the response to our NASA Hussain episode last week. That went beautifully um we've had a, a lot of correspondence some people saying it was our best show yet i think you can put that down largely to nasa being a great guest who was happy to get into questions and answers in real detail and, and have a proper sit down chat with us Adam. yeah i think that um uh, I, I don't think it's coincidental that our last couple of episodes have been been quite long it's that you know unshackled by having to talk about the game itself the conversations are a bit more free-flowing with our guests and look we are just going to let them mm. roll accordingly we've already had a chat to Lawrence as you say and that, that's fairly detailed as well we're looking forward to bringing that to you later in the episode we, we spoke to Lawrence this time last year uh, in the uh, library at the MCC there at, uh, at Lords before we were uh, walking into the dinner so we were in our tuxedos Jeff you're about to get gonged mm. as having had the the wisdom book of the year and all the rest so it was a very exciting night actually um, very different circumstances this time around of course with us all in their respective living rooms and and for Lawrence's part not having the dinner to host as it were this year because there is no dinner but um, it doesn't mean doesn't mean the book's any less for it uh, I tell you what it's a, it's a great edition of wisdom I've really enjoyed going through it over the last few days and uh, and hopefully uh, you enjoy that conversation later on if you're not allowed to go to a black tie dinner does that mean that you're wearing a tuxedo don't yeah, well, well, it may very well do I'm, I'm, well, maybe maybe we should have wore tuxedo t-shirts for the interview um, I've, got, I've got one of those somewhere I'm sure you do yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it, it, it should be um, it, sh- it should be archived along with some of the um, some of the bands that you have that you you're not shouldn't be wearing their, their that's, merch that's anymore. right exactly. there we are um, uh, Look, and, and as as you said, if if I don't win something in wisdom, I get I get shitty about it. So this year it's not official, but we've we've been we've had a nice little honour at being described as as the best cricket podcast going around in the book. Yeah, it's it's not a formal uh, award as as it's such. It doesn't kind of get mentioned up the front or anything. But hey, we're gonna we're gonna take it and run with and it and go with it. Yeah, James. What, what happened is Adam wrote it in the back of his copy of the book. <laughs> best podcast. <laughs> no, no, it, James Gingell had the section. So. In Inside Cricket in Media, which is a, a part of the book that we, we talked to Lawrence about, there is a, a podcast section. I think it might be for the first time as well. I don't recall if it was in there last year. If it was, it, mm. I, I don't think it was sort of a standalone bit. And yeah, at the, at the back of the section, it's, it's actually titled And the Final Word Goes To, which is a, a mm. nice little touch on what we do as well. And then at the bottom, he, he says a whole bunch of nice things about what we do here and it being the best, I think he described it as the best serious cricket podcast. So there's a few others he he, uh, he said, which were... <laughs> which I would have 
object to with my baby John Burgess <laughs> opener, right? <laughs> well, yeah, we're a very serious program, yeah, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. No, but yeah, it's, it's flattering to, to have that citation there. So uh, thanks to James, thanks yeah. to Wisdom, and uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool that we'll be able to say somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but we're going to roll with it. We have the best cricket podcast in the world according to the Bible, so, you know, we're going to go with it. And, you know, just to make things awkward for the author, the next three weeks will just be recordings of us lighting farts yes. um, in audio form. <laughs> we'll just keep pumping that out on the timeline. Um, so uh, congratulations to uh, Freddie Wilde and Tim Wigmore who've been on the show before. They've won the Book of the Year gong, so I'm, um, I'm happy to hand on that torch to them, um, even though they don't get to go to a dinner. I thought that was sort of worth noting. Obviously, there's a lot in the book each year and a lot of awards and all the rest of it, and we'll come to that later, but Freddie and Tim, I mean, I think Freddie's, what, maybe 25 years old, maybe 26 now. Tim's not yet 30. Ageless. Ageless, but... Tim Wigmore, will look, he'll look the same at 55 <laughs> as he does now. Well, in any case, both young men, and they've been able to, you know, win this thing. Uh, no mean feat, as you learnt last year, Jeff. It, it takes quite a book to, to receive that recognition. Uh, and we're proud to have had them on the show to talk about Cricket 2.0 uh, when we spoke to them at the Oval last October, I think it was, possibly November, around that time of year anyway. So you can go back through the archives and have a listen to that chat and uh, hopefully uh, that'll interest you in buying the book. But, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty cool for those two fellas that um, they've written the history of T20 cricket so far and it's been really well received, not just by young people, I should add, but, I mean, someone like Shield Berry, for example, a former editor of Wisdom, uh, the Telegraph's cricket correspondent for the last oh, many, many years, last 10 or 15 years, I think, since he uh, was doing that job recently, handing that mantle over. But uh, someone like Shield, who has seen everything over the last 45 years covering the game, and he was enamoured with it as well. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a great thing that they've been given that prestigious honour. A couple of bits of good news in, in a difficult world. I had some great numbers coming through for the Women's T20 World Cup that just took place. 1.1 billion video views on the ICC's digital platform for that tournament. Um, by far the most they've ever had for a women's tournament, second only to the, the Men's World Cup in 2019. Obviously, the digital arena is one that's growing as we go along. But uh, you know, coming in just after that men's 50 over World Cup is, is pretty extraordinary. Um, and, and more to note that it had 20 times the video views that they had in the West Indies in 2018, the last time they had a women's T20 um, global comp. Yeah, I was at that tournament in the West Indies and, and we thought that was a pretty big deal. But to think that 20 times the amount of people who watch videos uh, then are now watching and engaging now is, is quite the leap in not even 18 months. 1.2 million Australians watched the World Cup final on television. That's a huge number. I think I uh, read somewhere uh, when we were uh, last year going through the pay television debate in the UK that not a single day of international cricket in the UK until last year had had a million people watching it um, due to the paywall. To think that in Australia, which has what the population a third of the UK or something like that, that 1.2 million were watching that final, uh, I guess speaks to the fact that it's on free television, sure, but also that it did capture hearts and minds, which was the objective going in. It's almost as many as tune in per week to listen to the Wisdom award-winning podcast, The Final Word, 1.2 million. Um, <laughs> I did see that, so, um, I did see that we're, we were back on top of the charts in the UK a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I, I, so, you know, not, not for nothing. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Um, so... Things aren't going too badly in Australia and in terms of the corona curve, we're looking, 
okay at the moment and it does start to raise the optimism a bit that there might be some way to get that men's t20 world cup on later in the year in in october if if we can manage to keep the virus contained and who knows obviously everything changes within a few hours at a time uh, at this point but maybe we can dream adam we can dream yeah, I mean, there's obviously a really long way to go and um, it's different over here. I kind of made the point, I think, two weeks ago on the show that, uh, it, it, yeah, it feels pretty full on still in, in the UK. And, I mean, when we're recording uh, this edition of the show, the Prime Minister's in intensive care, like that's a that's an uncomfortable feeling no matter who you are or where you are um, in, in where I'm recording from. But the news is marginally better in Australia, not marginally, much better when you look at the trajectory of the curve in the last week or so and how um, new infections have been dropping uh, marginally, but still heading in the in the right direction. So whereas the last time we talked about scheduling, uh, it was, well, unlikely we'll see a World T20 this year for the men. You know, maybe we won't see any international cricket at all in Australia. Now the conversation's moving to, well, how will cricket and football potentially coexist in the last quarter of this year, which would um, which would sort of suggest that we could have some good news about um, that World T20 or the T20 World Cup, I should say, um, as we get closer. No sure thing, of course. Everyone's got to keep doing the right thing in, to, in order to keep the infection rate down. But hey, any good news is good news uh, that we're willing to accept at this stage. Everyone has to keep watching Do the Right Thing uh, by Spike Lee. Uh, great <laughs> film. Should should get onto that. It's, it's classic for a reason. There have been some ideas around that. I, I, we don't talk about rugby league a lot on this show. Maybe we don't talk about rugby league enough on this show. But rugby league did catch my attention during the week for the idea of NRL Island, uh, or as some have called it, Triassic Park, where the idea being that you put all of the National Rugby League players together on one island and have them play out the competition there, something which I think is a fucking brilliant idea, if only for the expedient of getting all the NRL players on an island. Imagine the social good that that would have if you could just remove them. Other people have pointed out that in a lot of ways Australia is already NRL Island in that that's where all the rugby league players have been put so they don't bother the rest of the world. But... God, if they could get it together, I would, I'd, I'd be inclined to start watching. I mean, they're, probably because there'd be nothing else on, but it would be amazing if it comes off. Yeah, well, if they get it together and, and they pull it off, then I don't know. I, I expect there'll be a lot of people shaving their heads in that scenario. And, and I have to say, I've said a couple of times during the week to my patient partner, Rachel, I feel like I'm going to be a real man and shave my head at some point during this saga. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, I might go with the man bun when I don't cut my hair for a couple of months. One way or the other, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. it, it, it's going to go in one direction or the other, I should say. But yeah, NRL Island, I mean, um, you've you've kind of summed it up quite neatly there. It would be, yeah, it it lends itself to parody, but it's also would be a fascinating study in in sociology if you had them all there at the same time. (laughs) Well, like think of the spin-offs. You put cameras everywhere. You could have sort of Big Brother style (laughs) shows in the evening. What are they up to? You know, what are are the Cronulla Sharks players getting up to? Are they hanging out with any any West Tigers players? Um, Who's, you know, are are the props hanging out? out with the props what's what's going on you know there'd be so there are so many ways that we can we could have other little contests during the week immunity challenges and so on um there's there's unlimited potential for this to 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 work out well you know maybe even just maybe just put a big wheel in like like a big turbine and have them all push it around in a circle and they could generate electricity in that way to power nrl island make it sustainable you know channel that energy into something constructive i just i 
I can't wait for this to get off the ground. Yeah, I mean, it would be, well, put it this way, it would be an advance on the way a lot of them spend their recreational hours at the moment. So we shall see. Is that, I mean, I haven't followed it too closely, but is this, where are they talking about? I mean, I know we, we heard the other week they might send them all to mm. Gladstone. Where, where, where's the, <laughs> well, like South Stradbroke Island or something like that? Where are they looking? Yeah. Um, South Stratty, that would be nice, wouldn't it? It's a lovely part of the world mm. over there. Um, a good, good friend of mine lives over on the, the more inhabited bit of Stradbroke Island. I've, I've had some nice four-wheel driving uh, trips over there. I'm not sure. I think it would have to be off the coast of New South Wales. Maybe Cockatoo Island, where Nick Cave put on that music festival oh, a few yeah, years yeah. ago. <laughs> There's probably still some infrastructure there you could repurpose <laughs> for NRL Island. But I think the key is it has to be not swimmable to shore. You have to make sure they can't get off. <laughs> That's 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 key because because if you only need two of them to get back to the mainland and then they'll start breeding and they'll repopulate the whole area with NRL players all over again. So you, you've got to make sure they can't get back. I noticed a couple of reviews saying that we talk too much about Australian rules football at times on this show. So I just hope we've balanced that with a bit of r- National Rugby League chat. <laughs> well, it speaks to our longing, doesn't it? I mean, we, we're going to yeah. get our teeth stuck into, you know, the... The, the, the 2019 season when we talk about the Almanac shortly, but um, casting forward, I mean, there, there is a, a genuine sort of desire for sport. It, hmm. I know we're kind of talking jovial about it, but I, I feel that, you know, kind of, it, I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I feel taxed by it. I feel that, like, it, it is starting to wear me down a bit. You wrote about it in The Guardian a few days ago about yeah. About that sort of emptiness, that of, of feeling, you know, the football season hasn't started and, and like, part of that pattern of life hasn't hasn't come around. Yeah, I, I did. And I think that's what prompted it. Like, the, in the end, what I was essentially putting was an idea about repurposing an old ground and turning it into a new ground. So it was kind of a, a thought bubble, which isn't my mm. idea originally, but one I hope to add it to somewhat. But it, it came from a place of thinking about, having had a baby and you know the 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 circle of football life and you know indoctrinating families in 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 rituals and and all the rest of it and uh, and the fact that there's just no sport at the moment i kind of love the i i really did look forward to this summer um sort of having uh, you know even though she's a little baby but watching the cricket with winnie and all these sorts of little things that Mm. that won't happen this year and yeah, I suppose we, we are hoping that um, this good news in Australia might mean that we, we, we have reason to, uh, the reason to believe that we, we might see something a bit later this year. It's really interesting that all of that came up this week. That was in your piece, um, you know, the pictures you put up of Winnie and the Hawthorne gear and all the rest of it. And then Bruce Dorr died this week, the, one of the great Australian poets, and there's this wonderful Bruce Thor poem, which I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with, but I don't think you are, and I thought I would read it to you because mm. it, it's absolutely on this um, on this topic. So th- this is Bruce Thor's poem called Life Cycle. When children are born in Victoria, they are wrapped in club colours, laid in beribboned cots, having already begun a lifetime's barracking. Khan, they cry, Khan feebly at first, while parents playfully tussle with them for possession of a rusk. Ah, he's a little tiger. And they are. Hoisted shoulder high at their first league game, they are like innocent monsters who have been years swimming towards the daylight's roaring Empyrean. Until now, hearts shrapneled with rapture, they break surface and are forever lost, their minds rippling out like streamers in the pure flood of sound. They are scarfed with light. A voice like the voice of God booms from the stands. Oh, you bludger. And the covenant is sealed. 
hot pies and potato crisps they will eat. They will forswear the demons, cling to the saints, and behold their team going up the ladder into heaven. And the tides of life will be the tides of the home team's fortunes. The reckless proposal after the one-point win, the wedding and honeymoon after the grand final. They will not grow old as those from the more northern states grow old. For them it will always be three-quarter time, with the scores level and the wind advantage in the final term, that passion persisting like a race memory through the welter of seasons, enabling old-timers by boundary fences to dream of resurgent lions and centaur figures from the past to replenish continually the present, so that mythology may be perpetually renewed and chicken smallhorn return like the maze god in a thousand shapes, the dancers changing, but the dance forever the same, the elderly still loyally crying, Khan, Khan, if feebly, unto the very end, having seen in the six-foot recruit from Eagle Hawk their hope of salvation. That's so good. That is, I mean, yeah, haven't heard or read that before, but uh, it's affecting isn't it because it, it, it's exactly what it is mm. you know my, my earlier I put this in the piece my, my earliest memories are all in brown and gold like I think I think perhaps the first five things I remember in my life all relate one form or another to the footy to Hawthorne mm. and, and maybe you could throw one cricket memory into the mix there but it's something about the tribalism that I was immediately captured by and has partially defined my life I was doing a podcast on the other show that I do the greatest season it was about the 1989 grand final the other day with, with Tony Wilson who's written an awesome book about it I strongly recommend it to any sports fan really um, and the, the observation I made there was that in the absence of the 89 grand final I think my life ends up very differently I don't think I end up anywhere near as engaged and obsessed almost with what we do if not for that one day when I was five years old yeah. like there's such they're, they're more than beachheads. It's like they're so defining. Uh, and, yeah, I think that that inter- intersection with having a, a now, I mean, that, that poem uh, from, from Bruce Dorr talking about the, the new child, that's what I'm going through right now on the other side of it. I want nothing more, even though I live in the UK, I want nothing more than for Winnie to have that as well. And just the fact that at the moment it's taken away, it's sharpened all that up, and I am kind of down about mm. it. And, 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 you know, and, and I don't even watch a lot of footy anymore, if I'm honest. Um, I think I would have watched more this year, but... It's just that, yeah, in the absence of it, it's a reminder of how important it is and how important it'll be into the future. And I'm, and I'm not saying it's exclusively a footy thing or a VFL-AFL thing. It's, it's just a, it's the rhythms of life and, and how, we, how we see ourselves in, as part of that uh, season on season. And, and at the moment, as we come into a new cricket season here in the UK, it's much the same. It's a glorious day today. It's probably 20 degrees outside, not a cloud in the sky. Uh, and you're thinking the one thing that just pulsates through me is it's it's nearly cricket season except that it's probably not yeah yep if we're looking at life cycles and seasons moving on we can also look at the career of one steve o'keefe his first class career has come to an end new south wales have punted him with which i think is a frankly pretty bizarre decision but uh i think rather than argue that we should Raise a salutation, glow sticks at the ready to farewell <laughs> Steve O'Keefe. Over 300 first-class wickets he took at less than 25 runs apiece. Um, fine work by a first-class spinner in Australia where there haven't been a lot of standouts um, since SK Warren was going around. So he's, he's certainly someone who had his problems and caused his problems with his 
life on the piss um, and some of the more objectionable things that he got up to while he was under the influence um, and, and that's inseparable I guess from his achievements on the field but um, he's a mixed bag Steve O'Keefe but someone who who did a lot with relatively limited wasn't someone who had the great burgeoning talent but was able to channel it with a lot of hard work and discipline yeah I feel uh, I feel um, like he, he um, he's worthy of a, of a really significant send-off I mean you're right to note the off-field indiscretions and they were of another era, weren't they? Like his kind of on-field indiscretions, he felt like a bit of a throwback. And yeah, he did play for 15 years at the top level. So he debuted for New South Wales, I mean, 15 years ago. He played nine test matches, 35 wickets at 29. I mean, I'll never forget uh, having been at Pune commentating um, for that test match where he took uh, six for 35 in both innings. I was on air, I think my first over on air of the tour, having arrived um, on the second day just due to a whole series of weird flights and whatnot was the over where he took three wickets <laughs> so uh, straight in the deep end and, um, great memory of kind of like having you know no idea what, what quite had just happened uh, and then yeah the bedlam uh, seven for 11 in six overs India lost in that first innings and it was pointed out by Tom O'Neill on, on Twitter when, when the announcement was made that Steve wouldn't be getting his contract renewed that India have lost one test match in India in the last seven years and, and it's principally due to well Steve Smith and Steve O'Keefe but O'Keefe got the ball rolling uh, with his bag in, in the first innings I'll always remember watching at the lunch break uh, of that um, of that first innings he, he bowled three overs before lunch and it didn't go well and uh, and he went out to the middle at lunch and just bowled he just kept bowling he didn't even though it's 40 degrees outside he just wanted to get it right before that middle session and and get it right he did so yeah, I, I think that um, 301 first-class wickets at 25 tells a story in Australia. He made some really strong comments to Corbin Middlemas, uh, our friend and colleague from the ABC, uh, in sort of a, uh, what would you call it, a sort of a, an exit interview, if you like, where he, where he said that it's an indictment that in five first-class games this year, he was the leading spinner with 16 wickets um, out of nine available games. That is to say, there are so few spinners on the circuit he made the point that you could get away these days in having three seamers sorry four front seamers and maybe a part-time spinner or a a part-time medium pacer holding up an end and the investment isn't there because the uh, the the focus has been on getting Australian batsmen better prepared to play the moving seeming ball, so the Duke's ball they use in the second half of the Sheffield Shield season and just generally um, that being more of an emphasis in Australian conditions that we aren't bringing forward a production line of, of spinners and O'Keefe is one who who yeah almost exists to a previous generation so oh yeah I, I am sad that he's finished up because if Australia were to have gone to Bangladesh later this year I, I mean yes Nathan Lyon's spinner number one no question but um, and look maybe they wouldn't have they probably wouldn't have taken him in fact they wouldn't have taken him but we would have built the case that the guy who could have complimented Lyon as he did in that test match at Chittagong in 2017 with Ashton Agar the third spinner there could have easily been Steve O'Keefe uh, or you know Mitchell Schwe- Epson's probably ahead of him in the queue, but but still, it, yeah, it does feel like it's ended a fraction prematurely, but hey, a fantastic career. Yeah, it seems like one of those cases where New South Wales has said, well, you're 35, so you've got to go, but they don't have anyone else. There's no other spinner at New South Wales. And so then you think, well, they, they must be working on a, a big poach from somewhere else, but there aren't really any options to poach from somewhere else. Sure, you know, Mitch Swepson's going around, but there's there's no established spinner really in shield ranks in any of the comps. Yeah, that, that's right. I, I uh, There was some reports that Adam Zampa could be lured to New South Wales, where, of course, he's from originally, but it sounds like Zampa's going to Victoria. So, um, you know, that, that, that may have been their plan. And just one more thing to add on, O'Keefe, before we move off the topic. 
I, I like the fact that he fronted up when he fucked up. Um, I have this distinct memory of when he made a tit of himself at the New South Wales Awards night um, a few years ago, which led towards um, a, a, a ban and a penalty and, and um, you know, repudiated by all and sundry within the cricket establishment, you know, ourselves, ourselves included on the final word. I'm sure we were fairly critical of him at the time. He must have been. Um, but then he, he rocked up to Bangladesh as a late call-up and immediately um, almost held his own press conference. He set up all the chairs in the hotel lobby, got us all around, got us, got us all around the boy, as it were, and he just threw himself on the grenade. He just took full responsibility for it, you know, and I don't sort of think that that's always something that comes naturally to um, sports people who are um, forgiven for a lot of smaller indiscretions and whatever else because they're very good at cricket or very good at football or whatever it is, but he knew that he'd crossed a line uh, and, and wanted to make amends for it, and I think that um, that says a bit about his character. Yeah, of course, you, you, he, he has to wear the knock for fucking up in the first place, but I don't think everyone would have been as quick to have realised how how big a deal it was and, and to have shown legitimate contrition for it. I think you're right. I think that's a, a fair assessment that that was the case. Um, I should also explain possibly to some listeners why we keep talking about glow sticks and sandstorm and so on because I, I don't think Steve O'Keefe's nightlife um, edition of choice necessarily was the bag of red Mitsubishis. I think that he was probably more <laughs> probably more a Bundy and Coke. So his problems all came from drinking too much rather than, the, rather than the rest. But I did write a line in a piece once about him celebrating a wicket like he was on the dance floor at 4am at Revolver. And so it's just spilled over from there that every, every, time, um, every time Steve O'Keefe comes up, we just start playing the, the opening riff from Sandstorm and, and get your hands in the air. Uh, I think also, Jeff, that in the absence of any cricket actually being played at the moment, he has to be our Seabus Super Performer of the Week, doesn't he? Yeah, for a career that involves 301 FC wickets at 24.6, Stephen O'Keefe is our CBUS Super Performer of the Week. Uh, CBUS, of course, is the superannuation provider. Investments, products, services, they do it all. They tailor those to meet the unique needs of the building and construction industry, including fit-for-purpose insurance. You can never have too much insurance. I'm sure many salesmen will tell you that, but um, this is probably the one you want to go with here. If, the most stable operation out there. Uh, you can go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS and uh, remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. One area where past performance was probably a reliable uh, narrator, of a reliable indicator rather of what was to come was, um, <laughs> was Dean Jones cracking the shits this week. Uh, um, yeah, uh, let's, we, we probably um, aren't well enough equipped to go too deeply into this because there's been no further reporting on it, but um, Daniel Cherney uh, broke the yarn a couple of days ago that Dino um, wanted his name taken off the formal award given to the best Victorian limited overs cricketer and he no longer wants to be recognised as a life member, which when you consider what a giant of Victorian cricket Dean Jones is, I mean, childhood hero to say the very least, um, a real pioneer of the white ball game uh, through the 80s and, and, and early 90s as well. It, it is sad that he, for whatever reason he's he's fallen out with whoever it is. We don't know the full story yet. Uh, Robert Craddock was speculating that it might have something to do with the fact that the, the Big Bash coaching job at the Renegades went to Michael Klinger and not to Dean. Um, of course, Dino's won a couple of PSL titles as a coach and by all reports he's uh, very invested in, in the data side of the game so he's well suited to, to T20 cricket and of course those aforementioned white ball instincts but um yeah it's it's, it's a weird one isn't it because uh, you know when you think victorian cricket one of the first names you think of is dean jones 
I'm just thinking, like, you know, take my name off that trophy. It, it's it's like, you know, Apu getting fired from the Quickie Mart. You can no longer tell anyone about our fried pickles. <laughs> it, tear, tear the badge off. I don't know. It's, it's a peculiar one. I'm, I'm not sure what would lead you to say I'm so angry with the um, state administration that I don't want to be a member anymore of mm. the state where I played all of my cricket. It, it seems a bit tangential, but, you know, Dino... Dino's going to Dino. That's the um, that's that's the only takeaway from this, and um, he'll make his decisions as he always has, and, and live with the consequences. So good luck to him. Yeah, he lined me up on Twitter. I don't know when it was. At some point uh, about something in, a, in an article I'd read where I directly quoted him, and he was trying to dispute that he'd written it. And I'm like, Wait, I'm literally quoting you, Dean. It's not a matter. It's <laughs> it's not my opinion. It's just anyway. He still remains my childhood hero, and of course, my first two, my first three cats in my life were. Were Dipper, Dino, and Dino too. So you can, you can, you can, uh, all, 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 oh, Mark didn't get a run. All finished the same way, regrettably, on the on, on our on, on our busy street that we lived on. Tragically, anyway. Um, uh, but yes, yeah, so uh, watch this space on the Dean Jones story. I'm sure Dan Cherney will, will have further developments on that as we go through the next couple of days. Uh, Jeff, with, with that little brief new section out of the way, uh, we're, we're probably up to your favourite section and, and certainly my favourite section of the weekly show. You know what time it is. It is. I know what time it is. Flavor Flav knows what time it is. <laughs> it's time for Nerd Pledge, the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game where people use our patron page to send us cryptic amounts of dollars and cents that correspond to a cricket number that we have to guess. We're going to start this week's segment with a correction from Andrew Swan last week who sent us $2.42. You were speculating that it would be involved, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, Sachin Tendulkar's innings at the SCG was what you were talking about. But no, he says, it was in fact Dougie Walters who also made a 242 When I was growing up in the 70s, says Andrew Swan, the big names of Australian Cricket were the Chapels, Marsh, Lily and Tomo, but my favourite was always Doug. At the time, he seemed like such a cool guy. My favourite playing memory was watching him on a black and white TV score a century in a session against England in Perth in 1974. And if you think it's hard to score a test 100 in a session, try it when the ball's actually grey because you're batting on black and white television. It's really <laughs> hard to pick out of the background. Uh, so thank you, Andrew, for the uh, correction. I think that's an innings that a lot of people of, of, of a certain vintage remember because it was obviously mm-hmm. on television and, you know, with the game coming in from Perth, it was a little bit later. My my dad remembers watching that uh, as well. Of course, final ball of the day, hooking. Uh, oh, Christ. I was, I was going to say John Snow, but it must have been Bob Willis for six from, from the – because Snow – didn't tour, I don't think, in 74, 75, didn't he? He was, he was the tour before that. No. Anyway, so 74, yeah. so it must have been Bob Willis. Last ball of the day as the sort of um, spearhead England quick. Uh, but, yeah, the 69 innings where he made his 242, that was the first time in Test cricket uh, where a, a, a player made a double in the first innings and another century in the second. So he made 103 on the second time yeah. around against the West Indies. So I'm glad that um, Dougie gets a mention. I'm pretty sure there's only six or seven of those historically ever. Um, Sangakara got a triple in a hundred. Yeah, so as, as a gooch. gooch. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, um, Mark anyway. Taylor came very close as well. 92 in the second dig after 3-3-4 in the first. Well, maybe you shouldn't have batted for so long in the first, Mark Taylor. <laughs> maybe you should have declared earlier. Instead of trying to level with Bradman, you hog, glory hog. Now, now. Always looking for- could not be fur- <laughs> that could not be further from the truth there. <laughs> I feel like I've got to stand up for Mark Taylor here. Anyway, no. No, no. I, I know. We, we, we will. Mark know. Taylor's going to come up. He He's going to come up later in the show in, in, a, in a very positive light. As we know, before we 
do the nerd pledges though. I have to do the non-nerd pledges. So some people, you know, they're 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 straight down the line. They come in with a normal amount because they don't have time for games, man. They just want a quality cricket podcast. Um, so thank you to these people. These were my responses to them as they came through. Richard Bolt. I was like. Thank you, Richard. It would be hard being a bolt because you could you exist on the spectrum of like way down one end you've got a pedophile enthusiast and professional lunatic Andrew Bolt, but then all the way up the other end you've got absolute legend Usain Bolt who yeah. uh, stopped trying three quarters of the way through the hundred meters, waved to the crowd with his shoelace untied, and still broke the world record. Mm. And as far as we know, has has always been a decent fella to everyone. And like maybe he was on the juice, maybe he wasn't, no. but he's he's always been nice. He's always been decent, as far as we know, in, in a public sense. So it's a very broad spectrum to be a bolt on, and it must be difficult, Richard. So um, I, I hope you're you're further towards the Usain end. You must be if you're a supporter of the show. Uh, David Jones has also signed up. There's no other store like. Thank you very much, David <laughs> Jones. Uh, our old pal Nick Tuvey has signed up again. I think he was on the. Sh- he's, he's signed up before. He's signed up again. You can do that. You can come and go as you please. It's it's an open door policy here at the Final Word. Uh, Catherine Lanky. When I saw Catherine Lanky's name, I thought of my father wrote a, a musical for my primary school um, to put on when I was in grade prep when I was six years old, and the principal was named Joseph Mankey, um, and there was a line in his song that said, um, I'm Joseph Mankey, lean and lanky, mean and cranky, this is so. Um, so when I saw Catherine Lanky, I thought of Joseph Mankey and, and cheerful childhood memories. I love the idea of your dad writing a musical for your primary school. I mean, that's, that's quite creative. I mean, how did that go for Classic you? Classic dad areas. How did that go for you in the schoolyard? <laughs> Well, luckily, I was just—I was in prep, so uh, you, you haven't really got to the relentless bullying for people being slightly different uh, yeah, phase. Yeah. So, had it been in grade five or six, it, it might have gone less well. But um, as it was, I think I got away with it. Um, Kazan Davies, a long-time supporter, but has upped the pledge, which is very much appreciated. Um, quite a lot of people have done that in the last couple of weeks, which is amazing. Andrew Reynolds, um, the school that the musical was written for, was uh, just past Reynolds Road, and I'm sure that Andrew Reynolds has some link to Reynolds Road. And your dad and your dad's called Andrew, isn't it? Uh, yeah, there you go. So Andrew Reynolds, put them together. Right? What do you get? Mm. My primary school. And the last one is Eleanor Aldroyd, our uh, friend and colleague at the BBC, who's been a huge supporter of ours as well. So thank you, Ellie, for love you, Ellie. Board. So that gives us three new numbers to tackle this week, Jeff. Yep. Okay. So why don't, why don't you why don't you why don't you start the clock running? How, why don't you give us the first one, and we'll, and we'll try not to go too long because there's some really good ones this week. All right, RJ has come through with 233, which rings a bell. It rings a bell about an Australian summer in the early 2000s. Yeah, so I had a, um, so 233 has been made twice in Test cricket. It happened in consecutive years in 2002. Uh, Carl Hooper made 233 against India. Um, but I reckon uh, RJ is mm. really looking at Rahul Dravid, um, who batted for nearly 600 minutes in that famous Indian victory Um in 2003 at Adelaide Oval, I, I kind of forgot that they were, they were applying to Australia's 556 and then they came together at 4 mm. for 85. So in, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, by, by they, I mean, of course, Dravid and, and VVS Lakshman. Um, that's 
not quite the score they, they arrived at together when they were following on at Calcutta a couple of years earlier, but it's not far off it. And then they batted together for a day. They added 303. Um, I remember Dravid moving to his century by hooking Jason Gillespie over the rope, the only six to hit in the innings to, to go to 100. So people think of Dravid as being this diligent, conservative, defensive player. But he's a hawk when it comes to foreign policy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, he's uh, you, you, yeah. Well, Raul Dravid, he doesn't believe that South Sudan's a country. Just won't recognise it. Raul no. Dravid refuses. Um, and uh, so yeah, but I, I had a um, I, I was looking at the card for this. I, I had a question mm. for you. Um, who okay. was who was Australia's fast bowling fast bowling trio in that mm. Test match at Adelaide in two thousand three? Well, given that you just told me that he hooked Jason Gillespie for six to move to a hundred, yep, Jason Gillespie was one of them. <laughs> who, who, who was rolling shotgun with Dizzy in that Test match? Okay. Given you are asking me that, that would have to mean that Brett Lee and Glenn McGrath were injured because cause it's got to be two random weirdos, right? Well, you, you, yeah, that, that's true to say. I wouldn't call them random weirdos. That probably would be my okay. descriptor of test okay. cricketers, but, but, um, but it's not Glenn McGrath or Brett Lee, correct? Okay, so I just had this little flash of um, Brad Williams and Nathan Bracken, but that was the next tour in 08, 07, 08. No, no, no. Um, no, no, no. no. You, you, you're pretty warm. <laughs> you, you're almost right. Okay. Uh, this was the tour was where Brad Williams and, and Nathan Bracken opened the bowling in the Boxing Day Test. You're correct. Yeah, yeah, but that was that was oh seven, right? No, it was oh three oh four. Oh, was it? Yep. Okay. So, what I remember from that series is that whoever got the best bowling figures kept getting dropped for the next game. Yeah. And Brad Williams took like four for something at Melbourne and got dropped for Sydney. Is that right? Yep. Took four in the second dig and got dropped for Sydney, but. Um, someone well that okay. must mean that whoever whoever um, who, the third bowler must have done well in Adelaide here we go here we go here we go um, therefore so was was Nathan Bracken one of them no no Nathan okay. Brax listens acts didn't come in until Melbourne right so he comes in in Melbourne so that means that means Brad Williams must have been there in yep. Adelaide but didn't take the wickets Correct. and went on to Melbourne and Andy Bickle would be the other one because he was the fill-in around very, that time. Very, very good. Very, very good, Jeff. It was Jason and Gillespie. Stuart McGill was the spinner yeah. because I remember him getting um, absolutely like, – I remember him getting out to Adjitagurka in that spell of six for Stuart McGill was the last one out. Yeah, that, that was the summer where Warren missed due to his drugs ban, which he, um, which he, uh, where he was suspended mm. uh, earlier in, in 2003. But you're right. So Brad Williams was the second seamer and, and Andy Bickle was – was bowling first change. But yes, Ajay, was it uh, Rahul Dravid? I, I reckon it probably was, because that is the, the victory, isn't it? That, you know, Hasha Bogle, when we were with him in Adelaide last year, was was speaking so fondly about the ground because of that win uh, and because of that, that Latchman and uh, Dravid partnership. Mm. So I reckon we might be on the money there. So uh, the next one, thank you, Ajay, is Will McLean, 6 for 70. Uh, well, is what I'm guessing it would be because it's six, $6.70, 6.70. Sometimes, like, if I, if I think Adam's going to know him off the top, I'll, I'll just spring them on him. Sometimes I'll, I'll put them there in advance so that he can do some research. And you've gone absolutely hog wild on this. There's about three pages on, <laughs> on 6 for 70. Uh, no, well, <laughs> yeah. Look, um, James Vince test cap, it's not that. Uh, I don't think it's going to be James Vince's test Test cap. Of course, they're the only country, England, with that many test cricketers. Chris Wokes took a brilliant six for 70 as part of a 10-wicket match against Pakistan in, in 2016 at Lords. One of the best test matches I've, I've covered, actually, and been to full stop. Um, but I don't think it's that, nor do I think it's Craig McDermott, six for 70 at Lords in 1985. I don't think it's Josh Hazelwood's six for 70, nor Daniel, Daniel Vittorio or Annual Kumlay's 
I think it's going to be Richie Benno's six for 70, though. That's that's the one mm. that, that immediately jumps out. So Ashes on the line in 1961 at Old Trafford. Uh, they had 177 first innings deficit, um, and England were set... 256 for victory eventually, uh, and they were one for 150 in reply. So they were that close to, to winning and, and taking the ashes. But um, Benno decided to go famously around the wicket into the trench, as it were, and 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 uh, in 20 minutes he, he ripped out the heart of the England middle order before tea on, on the final day. He had a broken shoulder as he was doing it. It's, uh, it's sort of Benno's most famous performance with the ball bowling into Freddie Truman's footmarks and finished with six for 70. I, I wrote about it when when, uh, when when he died and was doing his obituary for the ABC. And uh, yes, it stands in the memory, I think, for anyone that's taken an interest in Ashes history when, when Richie Benno won the Ashes for Australia in England with the ball. Thank you, Adam. I'm prepared to accept that answer because there's a lot of detail there and there's no point me adding anything else. Will McLean, we're going to call it Richie Benno's 6 for 70. Let us know if we're wrong. And the last one for today is Ben Rao. Ben Rao, um, who's been watching a lot of Tiger King, obviously. And uh, Adam has also gone hog wild in the library with Ben Rao's 2 Seven two. Well, I'll, two I'll, seven two. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll explain my workings. So, um, yeah, Rick McCosker was the two hundred and seventy second Test cricket. I didn't think it was going to be that, and I kind of thought, in the absence of a two seventy two in Test cricket, it's unlikely to be bowling figures. It's probably a, a team score. Nothing really jumped out. So I thought, what about balls? Maybe maybe balls could be the the metric. And found out that um, what about balls? What about the balls? Um, and and quickly found out that JJ Ferris bowled two hundred and seventy two <laughs> balls for England in Test cricket. Of course, his uh, his crazy crazy numbers of when he played for Australia earlier. He's one of a handful of players to to have turned out for. God love JJ. JJ Ferris was he was one of the three players with a better bowling average than Muhammad Abbas, wasn't he? When, when yeah. Muhammad Abbas qualified with the ten the thousand deliveries cut off for all time bowling figures, I reckon there were three ahead of him: Spoffer, Ferris, and one other. Someone kind of random. Someone they were all eighteen eighties bowlers. That's right. They certainly all before. Well, I think this this Test match where where Ferris did bowl for, for England was in eighteen ninety two. It was his, his final Test match. But yeah, it got me thinking about mm. balls and and as, and. <laughs> As you know, um, <laughs> it's incredible that after a, a lifetime covering sport, we can still be brought undone by some most basic part that. of its nomenclature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, here it is. Here it is. Two seventy-two balls to spare. Uh, were when sh- in the two thousand and three World Cup, Sri Lanka playing Canada at Pal, and they bowl out. Sri Lanka bowl out Canada in 18.4 overs for, for 36. It's sort of like one of those games where people mm. crack it and say, why are all these you know secondary associate nations playing in the World Cup? Why yep. are they so shit? Why are they wasting our time and resources? It's and the lowest one-day score, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. That's right. So... Sri Lanka go on to win the game in 4.4 overs. They chase down the 37 they require and they win by 272 balls, if you like, as far as what they had remaining. <laughs> um, I, which is what I should add, I think, in the future, we'll talk about T20 that, that way. We'll say that they won by X amount of balls rather than wickets. Anyway, so all this abuse that, that Canada are copying after that performance, four days later, they're playing the West Indies. And you flick on the TV on a Sunday night, as, as I'm sure you would have been doing as well, Jeff, to tune in and see what's going on in the World Cup. Canada bat first, 
and John Davison, the Victorian spinner at that stage. I think he might have just moved to South Australia by that point, actually. Strikes a 67-ball century against the West Indies. At that stage, it was the, the fastest in World Cup history. It was since broken by Kevin O'Brien, who we talked about last week. But forget about Kevin for the moment. It was Davo. Uh, he was... I, I sort of think of it as like a real where were you moment. I know I was sitting on my in my grandmother's house watching it on that on that Sunday night and just enamoured by it. He, he, I was speak, we were talking about Dean Jones earlier. He's on the commentary saying that he should be made Prime Minister. Unclear whether he means um, of his native Canada or, or, or Australia. Of course, Davison spent the first, I think, few months of his life in British Columbia, if I recall correctly. Yeah. But yeah, so Dean c- Jones famously up on Canadian politics. Yeah. yeah. Real, real interesting. Well, well Dean Jones ended up nearly the candidate. So the reports went nearly ended up the Liberal candidate for McEwen uh, before the 2010 election. But anyway. Um, that would have so, gone well. Yeah. So at, that, at, at one stage, Canada were one for 140 after 19 overs. Remember, they were bowled out for 36 four days earlier. In the end, they, they collapsed and were all out for 203 and West Indies um, <laughs> knocked it off in 20 overs. But but still, the, the, the Davison century is something that we remember fondly. Just after the 272 ball mm. victory, if you like, a few days before, the following year he went on to play in Canada's first first class game for a century uh, and he took 17 for 137 against the USA <laughs> and made 84 in the same game so he, he had a, a brilliant all-round performance uh, with the wow. red ball as well so uh, John Davison um, you know had a long um, career as a Victorian off-spinner and South Australian off-spinner but perhaps best known for that for that day back in 2003 so even though it doesn't strictly speaking relate to the 272 I think that Ben Rao has, has given us that cryptic clue to get us back to Davo. I love the amount of work you've put into that. I really appreciate it. I respect it. Um, the only problem is I forgot to give you a hint that Ben sent me, <laughs> which <laughs> means it's definitely not any of that. <laughs> That's fine. What, what, what um, was his clue? The, the hint was that it relates to uh, an innings run rate, 272, mm. which I took to mean for a team across an entire innings rather than for a player in terms of a strike rate. So what does 272 work out to be in a 50-over in a game? Well, I had to dig around, mm. and uh, and while I was digging, I unearthed a, an interesting nugget, an opal, if you will, of, mm. in, of information. 2.72 runs per over is the scoring speed at which Australia went against the West Indies in 1999 in Manchester in the World Cup when they had to score slowly enough that Uh. the West Indies would stay in the pool on net run rate in order to knock out who was it? Yeah, this is a this, well, they, well. They didn't quite execute. This is a great little story. What we went into last year on the '99 podcast and the greatest season it was. So what Steve Waugh tried to do was beat the West Indies uh, modestly in such a way that the West Indies would go through from that pool from Pool A, mm. um, which would mean that in the Super Six stage Australia would have those carryover points because if mm-hmm. if the West Indies went through and because of course Australia had lost to New Zealand and the West Indies and New Zealand were vying for that for that final spot in the end. And it meant that New Zealand needed to absolutely annihilate Scotland the following day, and they duly did. So even though um, War got the plan right at the time, he had the West Indies sitting above New Zealand by the time they went to bed that Sunday night in Manchester. The following day, um, it was made a moot point because... um, New Zealand came out and, and spifflicated Scotland. So um, there was a lot of criticism of, of Steve Waugh at the time for doing that from, from all quarters. And, but you know, when it boiled down to it, Brian Lara, who was captain of the West Indies, said he probably would have done the same in those circumstances. So it was a quirk of the fact that in that 99 World Cup, 
all games were created equal. Like there was no sort of bonus point structure. It was just simply a win was two points and a and a no result was one. And, and they had spare days and all the rest of it. So there was a bit of a log jam in both mm. groups, which meant that it was net run rate resolving it. And as we know, net run rates really a, a particularly good indicator of you know a team across a tournament, in my opinion. Anyway, so War tried to exploit that. Didn't quite come off, but I love the fact that Ben Rowes got there. I I love that I didn't give you that crucial hint, and yet you still gave me like a six minute dissertation on <laughs> the glue once I told you what it was. It's remarkable. To be work. fair, this time last year, I was spending a lot of time looking at the 9 World Cups. So it's still firmly yeah. in front of my head. There we are. Well, those are the numbers for this week. We um, we didn't quite skip through them as quickly as we, we might have thought, but it was interesting, and uh, I hope you found it interesting too. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, you go on the internet, you go to patron.com, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patron.com slash the final word and once you get there you can sign up to support the show what it means is you can send us uh, x number of dollars or cents per show or per month or whatever you want to do and you can set us a number that we will try to solve on the program before jumping into a bit of uh, correspondence i just want to note that uh, there's going to be more stuff than ever on the final word feed so uh, whether you're a member of the 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 patron account or not um, uh, as, as we said the other week we're never going to put it under a paywall or anything like that But um, and we're e- enormously grateful for those who have jumped on board recently it's making a massive difference while we're in the shutdown period and if you are so inclined that'd be wonderful but um, we're, we're trying to put up more than ever to make it really worth your while so in addition to the weekly show every second week we will be putting out a an encore edition of our old interviews. So um, we've, we've over the last four or five years, um, put together some long interviews we're really proud of, not too dissimilar to what we did uh, with Nasser Hussain last week and mindful that a lot of people that have come to the show in recent months wouldn't have necessarily gone through our back catalogue. We'll, we'll start releasing some of those. And in the alternate weeks, there'll be episodes of um, the Calling the Shots podcast. So Daniel Norcross uh, and myself, a, a documentary-style podcast as part of the, the new pinch hitter digital magazine and we'll be going through the history of cricket commentary so each week there'll be the of course jeff and i once a week and then alternate weeks there'll be the interviews that from yesteryear so to speak and the uh, and the uh, calling the shots documentary if you like which um, we put the preview up last week some of you might have caught it on the feed and uh, we're really, really looking forward to the first ep of that coming out on the 17th of april safe to say adam has a lot of time on his hands and he is using that to make a lot more work um, so yeah if, if you're enjoying it in the shutdown uh, we hope you are stay tuned that is the end of nerd pledge for another week uh let's open the mailbag real quick now we've got a message in from donna who adam true true to us uh, after our own hearts has gone out and purchased the box set of the first season of sliders the jerry o'connell masterpiece of interdimensional space travel um, after we discussed it on the show last week, uh, describing us as influencers for the Sliderverse. Um, she, she says, heartfelt thanks to you, lads. You've kept me company in the garden, walking to work and walking along the coast. I've had my views on the great game supported and challenged, and I always learn something for I'm a cricket tragic in every sense. Stay strong and together, albeit from a distance through this troubling time. Best wishes and virtual squidgy hugs. And I love a squidgy hug, whether virtual or not. So thank you, Donna. Thank Thanks, Donna. That was great. I love the sliders line. Had to get that in there. Just brilliant. Uh, we had a note from Terry, who is a former colleague of mine from uh, working at Parliament House. He's also been busy in isolation putting together, and the reason I thought we'd bring it up is he, his uh, contention is that the, the months that he worked at Parliament House, so from late 2010 uh, to the end of 2011, correspond with the most productive time for Australian 
test debuts in the men's team. So uh, he's got here, I think it would hold up pretty well against any other 18-month period of Australian test debutants. And he runs through it. Warner, <laughs> Cowan, Kawaja, Smith, Sean Marsh, Tim Payne, Pat Cummins, Mitchell Stark, James Pattinson, Nathan Lyon, and Xavier Doherty. And if you exclude, I suppose, Doherty as the extra bowler there, it's a formidable side. I mean, it's pretty much the the, the spine of a, a generation uh, and, and a pretty good one too when you look at all those players. So nice, nice job, Terry. Yeah, it works well. And any team that's got Ed Cowan opening up top gets the tick <laughs> from the final word. Uh, we've had a couple of really nice video messages in as well from Adam Soffer, who's uh, listening out there, and from Oscar Mervyn, who've showed us around their homes, um, what they're getting up to at home. Adam Soffer's got the picture of himself with Sachin Tendulkar on the mantelpiece. Lovely touch. Yeah, and uh, Oscar Mervyn uh, has got a, a great uh, sort of tribute to Mark Taylor on his on his, uh, on his on his wall, uh, which uh, we said we talk about Mark Taylor again, which I think is just fucking brilliant. Who still has... Mark Taylor on on their wall. Twenty one years after he's retired, I think that's just great. And his baby, <laughs> and, he, and he showed me some some his baby Bruno, who is uh, twelve weeks old. So um, he's also in the early stages of being a dad. So uh, cheers, Oscar, and, and thanks to Adam. We've received tons of DMs this week as well on on Patreon. Um, I mean, I'll just run through who's dropped us lines because it's, it's actually quite overwhelming getting all these messages. John O'Leslie, uh, Messi, Jez, Robert Amore, Tanya Wintringham, uh, Matt Fidge, Michael. Fallon, who keeps saying nice things about my hair, keep up with that. Um, Amanda B and her husband, Stephen Baxter, Ben Rennick, Karen Hall, Bernard Sayer, Dave Brown, Daniel Craddock, Peter Dowling, Chris Weinberg, the great Philip Meng, the the, creator, the originator of Nerd Pledge. The creator of Nerd Pledge. Rob Hester, Terry, who we already mentioned, Grant Wise, Tim Unwin, Gopal, Liz Ellison, Ben Gatter, Sam Litster, and our old friend Dan Liebke. Thank you so much for all taking this time just to, to drop us a line and, and, uh, and be part of what we're doing week to week on the final word yes and and there will be all the extra stuff as adam talked about there'll be some other extras going up on the patron bits and pieces so let's not list it all because i won't remember and you won't remember <laughs> uh but now <laughs> i don't remember where we are what what do we have do we have anything else we need to talk about jeff i think we have cleared the decks we've done everything we need to do to ready ourselves to hear from lawrence booth all right let us proceed uh, via a quick break to the feature interview with the editor of Wisdom, Mr. Lawrence. I wanted to ask him um, when we interviewed him, but I forgot. Has anyone ever called him Larry? I wonder if anyone's ever said, hey, Larry. Hey, Larry Booth. Larry Booth. Maybe we'll... Come on over, Larry. Why don't you try it first? Yeah, I, I'm just, I just, he's just such a distinguished, um, esteemed individual. It would just sit really incongruously, but be mm. hilarious. So, all right, when I get back to the UK, I'll give it a crack. Lazza, Larry uh, let's hear from Lawrence Booth. Uh, before we go to Larry Booth, uh, Jeff, uh, we, we've, we've got to, before we get to Lazza, big Laz. Um, His nickname should be Photo, Photo Booth. Yeah, we could go with that. Lazar Vidovic uh, Booth, um, who once got suspended for kicking Paul Deere. <laughs> I think it was pulled here. Uh, we should probably say a couple of words about our old friends at the Sat Phone Shop. I miss the, the days when you used to go Sat Phone. <laughs> uh, were, were you doing? Was it like saxophone? Yeah, it was a play on saxophone. But yes, the, the Sat Phone Satellite Shop. Satellite Phone. Satellite Phone. <laughs> well, uh, the Sat Phone Shop 
this week and all weeks now, Adam. It's all about Zolio. Yeah, you hear them say it. You hear the kids talking about it, Zolio. You so, see them texting so, about Zolio. it. Zolio. <laughs> it's Zolio. So you see, you, you, you monitor your kids' Instagram DMs, Zolio, they're all saying. What's this? What, what does it stand for? Well, it's not an acronym. It's a satellite telecommunications device. Um, and, and a Zolio is like a sweet little little contraption, little box about the size of a early generation um, iPhone or something. It's, it's quite small. You can clip it onto your belt if you're one of those cool guys who clips things onto their belt. Um, I know I know that really – it really stamps your authority if you've got a bunch of keys on your belt and then maybe a phone on, on the other side of the belt. Balance it up. Make sure you don't fall off the, um, the gymnastics beam if you're up there. But the Zolio clips onto your belt or put, sits in your pocket or whatever it is and it receives satellite transmission and then it connects to your smartphone, whichever one you have, and turns your smartphone into a sat phone. So you don't have to buy – the full-on Everest satellite phone with the protective hard case and the foam and the all the rest of it for a fraction of that cost, you can get this thing, which makes your phone a sat phone, and then you can get satellite in, uh, messaging and phone calls anywhere around the world as long as you can see the sky. Uh, you'll be able to satellite text or talk to whoever you want. I think whoever has the the Zolio clipped to their belt should also have to have their keys clipped to their belt. That feels like a, a real sort of... <laughs> Boomer of a certain vintage. It's a bit like uh, a bit like having your phone in your wallet as part of the same carrier. You know, how you kind of mm. you can have a, a phone protector, which is I think to, in order to have one of those, you need to be at least fifty four years old, and you must be a man. That, that it's just the rules. I don't make them. Yeah, yeah. I, but the thing about Azolio is you can carry it anywhere you want. You can be a cool guy. You can put it in your bum bag. You can. Uh, <laughs> You can put it in your Legionnaire's cap with a little uh, pouch in the flap with a little Velcro pouch that you can close over. You could pop it in there if you want. Um, you can put it on your skateboard. You know, you, it does it, you, could, be, you could be all kinds of cool and, and still get down with Zolio. Um, so, so that's the thing. You go to satphoneshop.com and then you can buy it and then you can talk to anyone you want anywhere in the world, wherever you are. Pretty sweet. I wonder if um, so. You can send so it gives you a, a signal. So you can you can just use your phone yeah. as per. You you install an app on your smartphone, which is like the Zolio app, and yep. that's a messaging app. Um, and also you can also do calls. So you can get texts through that app through your normal number, um, or you, I think you can set up a specific number as well for your satellite comms if you want that. Um, and yeah, so you can just message people off your normal phone by having this thing turned on. I wonder so how long it'll be till there's like a, a Zolio version of Tinder, which like Warney invents or invests in or something like that. Can't be far away. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you've got to be able to, you know, make Mad sure rooters have got preparations a root. done, right? <laughs> Even if you're up Everest, um, <laughs> more like Mount Neverest, hey, eh? <laughs> hoy. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, look, go to satphoneshop.com. Um, they're nice to us here at the show. They help keep it running. Um, and, and check out Zolio. That's all I've got to say. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to the Final Word. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And, Jeff, we have a returning guest. Not many people do The Final Word on, on two occasions, but but Lawrence Booth keeps producing The Wisdom Almanac year on year, so we, we have to get him back. And uh, the good book... Baby, come back. <laughs> the good book, the, the Bible of Cricket, as I'm sure we all know it, uh, is is out uh, tomorrow, normally uh, it would it would be uh, corresponding with a with a beautiful uh, dinner and presentation in the long room at Lords. Uh, regrettably, that's not the case for obvious reasons, but it hasn't prevented us getting Lawrence down the line on Zoom to talk to us about a really 
important year in cricket. So, of course, the 2020 Almanac covering the 2019 summer, the England summer specifically, uh, which is its remit. And Lawrence, uh, welcome to the show again. And yeah, what a summer to be sort of taking on. What a task. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, good to be back. We're in the, the museum, uh, the library last year, weren't we? Just before before the Lord's yeah, Dinner right. and our black ties, so slightly different circumstances this time. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it's probably the most important wisdom I've edited, I mean, I did the 150th in 2013, but this feels like the big E. It tells the story of the, the England men's first World Cup win, which I I, th- I think I always have to put in inverted commas because people get angry otherwise. And an amazing Ashes series in the summer of Ben Stokes, so it was a great one to edit. Yeah, I, I was going through, I was going to ask you about this later, but we'll, we'll come to it at the start. You had the responsibility of writing about not only your editor's notes, which we'll come to, and a number of sections which you contribute to, but as editor, um, you took responsibility for writing about the World Cup final, the report of that, and the report of the of the Headingley miracle with Ben Stokes, the third Ashes test match. I was thinking about that when going through it. Um, some match reports in Wisdom, they sit on page 974, and they'll be re- referred to in the future, but these are the, I guess, the, the the most important cut of history of these games, which will live on for generations. Do you sort of know that when you're penning reports uh, for the book, which relate to such massive events, that these will be poured over for generations? Yeah, I mean, it got it. It sounds greedy, doesn't it? I grabbed the World Cup final and the Headingley report. I mean, actually, I, I did grab the World Cup final. I thought that was kind of my prerogative, and I probably would never get to write another home World Cup final with England in. I thought I'm doing that one. Headingly, with, with the Ashes, with the Test matches, we organised them in advance, so it just so happened I got lucky with the the Headingly report. But yeah, it was interesting. Um, last week we, we we tried to do a, a serialisation in a national newspaper in England, and the, the Daily Mail did it this time for the first time. It's been the Times and the Telegraph in the past, and, and for the first time they ran two match reports, which was the, the two games we've just been talking about. So. Yes, absolutely. In, in years to come, they will probably be the games that people will go to first when they open this wisdom. Uh, Lawrence, last year, the way we did this was we went through, the, the I guess, the preface of the book um, and we explained how it's put together. I mean, let's remember it. It's over a million words, isn't it? So it's a, it's a massive beast, 1,500 pages. I mean, the whole bit. But um, the only real way that we're going to be able to do a, a suitable interview here is if we do it in an organised manner. So to that end, we'll start with the start of the book and, and we'll work out through the, the two sections that, that people tend to, to get stuck into so the comment uh, and the review, so the essays and, and so forth. And, and and we'll begin with your editor's notes. But before getting there, in the preface this year, you talk about off the top, the first words of this sort of momentous edition of the book is about an obituary from 1955, which Wisdom missed then, and, and you want to make amends for here. Yeah, we're, we're trying now in each obituary section each year to run a, a, a proper obituary of a, of a woman um, who was ignored at the time. Um, fortunately, a lot of women have been ignored by Wisdom over the years. And we're giving them a full story, really. Um, during the, the the anniversary years of World War One, we did it with a, a cricketer who died in the in the First World War, and it, it seemed quite a nice way of bringing that to life. And we're trying to we're trying to make amends now with um, women cricketers that we've ignored. So I, I went in on that in the preface this time, Lawrence. Before we get into the book for this year, the, the thing that was pressing the question that was pressing when you were about to come up on screen was do you have any idea what the hell you're supposed to do for next year if if cricket doesn't get played for however long you might have a much skinnier much less than a million words to fill uh, the next time the book comes out yeah it's funny this year I feel like I'm going to be answering questions about next year's wisdom as much as this year's wisdom because a lot of the chat on social media is how thin will wisdom 2021 be the answer (laughs) is we just don't know um uh, we don't know but also I'm as relaxed about it as I could be and as much as it'll be a collector's item. You know, it'll be 
it'll be the coronavirus wisdom and it won't stop people buying it. Um, even if it's only 700 pages, you know, the, the World War One editions, which are about 300, 350 pages, they get snapped up. Uh, World War Two, they're, they're on the thin side, 700 pages. So if it's going to be like that, then fine. Um, all we can do is reflect what happened or more to the point, what, what didn't happen. And you'll save a lot on postage, presumably. <laughs> oh, we'll save all sorts of costs. I mean, it's, it's going to be glorious. Lawrence, moving to the, the part of the book which uh, people skim to pretty quickly when uh, when it comes out each year, your editor's notes, they're, they're an important part of uh, the job, really, as Wisden Almanac editor, because um, what is said there means something. It, it, it's something that uh, will, will stand usually the, the test of time when people are thinking about the history of the game and, and it's something that you, you spend a lot of time working on, I know, through the year. But this year you had the chance off the top to really celebrate uh, the 2019 World Cup final in all its glory. Yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, the, the crown jewels of the book in a way, aren't they? They're what get quoted around the world. Well, wisdom, wisdom comes out, if I were to write the same things in the in the Daily Mail, it would be roundly ignored, I, I should think. Um, so, yeah, people do seem to pay attention to what to what wisdom says. And, yes, you're right, it's a, it's a celebration fundamentally of... Um, not just, I mean, we are a, a mainly English book with an international slant, so not just of England's first Men's World Cup win, but also of the, the day itself, that, that World Cup final at Lords, the, the magnanimity of the, of the New Zealanders. I think we were all in that press conference where Kane Williamson spoke with incredibly good grace and, and, and feeling, and he, he wasn't bitter at all, and that was what made the day as special as it was. Um, you know, Chris Wokes picking up uh, Martin Guptill, who's sort of lying on the turf a few, a few free, feet from glory, um, it's sort of redolent of the, the Andrew Flintoff Brett Lee moment at Edgbaston in 2005. It, there was a there was a feel good factor about the whole day, even though it ended in such uh, calamity for New Zealand, such unfortunate um, set of circumstances for them. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a you know sometimes in the, the wisdom notes begin with a you know slamming the ICC or slamming the ECB. Well, this was a, this was a chance to to say something good about cricket and what cricket can be. You were also nuanced though in not. Uh, talking about not fetishising the New Zealanders as the the perennial good blokes that they always get um, painted as in the world of cliche. Yeah, I, I I sort of felt that maybe went a bit too far, and that they were probably got a bit sick and tired of being told that they'd reacted uh, with such good grace. I mean, I went to New Zealand in um, before Christmas for England's tour there, and all the you can imagine all the questions were about the world. How were they dealing with the trauma of the World Cup final? And they, they took the questions on the chin, but you did sense after a while that it began to grate. And then when England won the, the deciding T20 game in New Zealand on a super over, <laughs> of all things, Tim Southey had to face <laughs> questions, those questions again. He was a standing captain. So, look, New Zealand did handle it with good grace. That That is not in question. I just didn't want to paint them as guys who were happy to lose. They they really wanted to win. There are a couple of bits of that super over that you needed to, to deal with. and Well, even one before the super over, the 50th over, the, the, the deflection that went for for four additional runs, so four overthrows on top of the two. And as the the MCC section goes into later and, and you specify in the editor's notes, it should have been five, not six. But you don't want to... Um, you don't want to, and you, you talk about the butterfly effect and how you don't want to automatically assume that had it been five, it wouldn't have been a different result and all the rest of it. Just to kind of state for the record that um, the correct decision was arrived at in terms of the, the, the boundary countback, as silly as it was, and the, the wrong decision was made with the overthrows, but that doesn't diminish from the final result. No, that was my argument. I think all those things can be true at once. Um, New Zealand were incredibly unlucky, which they were. England were incredibly lucky. Um, it, not just that, but you know, Trent Bolt standing on the rope when he caught caught uh, Stokes mm. when he could have just tossed it to Martin Guptill he didn't actually realise where he was you can w- rewatch that video that would have been game over 
um, the, 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 the ridiculous one in a million deflection up the hill to, to the pavilion, which was wrongly interpreted by the umpires. Weird that they managed to do that. Rashid should have been a strike. All those things are true. England got lucky. But England, Stokes played the game as he uh, as it seemed to be at, at the time. Off the last ball, he gets a leg stump full toss from Trent Bolt and he knows that a single will give him a super over. Uh, so he, he put he, so he pushes for a second. Now, had he needed four or six, he might well have hit that towards Regent's Park, and we wouldn't be talking about all this now. I mean, we we head we head that section in the notes the butterfly defect rather than butterfly effect because oh, no sorry. no the, the, <laughs> I suppose the point was that you 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 know chaos theory works in in weird and wonderful ways, and we we'll go mad trying to second guess what would have happened if that had happened, and and so on. Unfortunate, but that's the way it worked out. You also talked about the importance of that game being out from behind the paywall. Basically, all English cricket has been behind that uh, cable TV paywall since 2005, and finally it, it got to poke its head out where the general public could see it, and it just happened to be for probably the most dramatic match, in certainly in the history of English one-day cricket, if, if not all cricket. Yeah, it's a, it's a drum I, I beat most years to the, the frustration of... of some people, um, certainly at Sky. Uh, look, it was a good decision by Sky to share a coverage of that game with Channel 4. The, the figures went through the roof and they would have been even higher had it not been for the men's uh, singles final at Wimbledon turning into its own epic and more or less clashing uh, with, with, the, with the climax of the World Cup final. Um, it, I don't know, it seems like a debate that... Um, it seems a strange debate to me. Um, you, know, you, make, you make a game more visible and more people watch it. Hey, presto. Um, the, what happened then, of course, 10 days later was that uh, England played another game at Lords, a test match against Ireland. It was back behind the paywall. So it felt, felt tantalising, that that glimpse into what cricket can be. Hopefully it, it grabbed a few people. You know, it, it, The ECB reckoned that 15, over 15 million people at various stages tuned into Channel 4's coverage. And they say that 10% of TV viewers are under 18. So you're looking at 1.5 million potential young converts. Now, that, that can't be a bad thing. But um, yeah, it was the it was the greatest kind of. It felt like English cricket was a it was a property of the public again, and it hadn't felt like that since two thousand and five. By the end of twenty nineteen, we, we were talking about the length of Test cricket again. That debate, which comes up from from time to time, of course, we had a four day Test match in twenty nineteen between England and Ireland, but um, various comments from cricket boards got it well and truly on the agenda again. Uh, but as expected, uh, you in the editor's notes came out strongly in support of five-day test cricket, quote here, um, to lose a day would be to lose its essence. Cricket has had enough dumbing down. But again, there's that nuanced position. You're, you're not just saying that every test needs to be five days. You're saying there's room for four-day test cricket from time to time, but not carte blanche when I want all test cricket becoming four days in order to fit in with some World Test Championship schedule or something like that. Yeah, I think if it's a question of supporting the, the so-called lesser nations, um, you know, Ireland, Afghanistan, um, Zimbabwe, then, it, then it, 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 it makes some sense to me, England Ireland was a was a scheduled to be a four day game. It finished in three, which which sort of um, gave sucker to those who were, who were arguing for four day cricket. Zimbabwe have played South Africa over a couple of four day games, which didn't even um, come close to lasting four days. So there, there there is room for it. Let's be pragmatic, you know. Let, let, let's yeah. let's keep Test cricket going in whatever way we can, but let's not sacrifice the greatest part of Test cricket, which is its timelessness. There are enough short format games um, in, in in cricket now. Let, let's celebrate the, the the true essence of Test cricket. You wrote a strong section, Lawrence, on implicit racism or, or unconscious bias. You're talking particularly about Moeen Ali and Jofra Archer and really about the, the language with which they're described or the way that they're perceived by a predominantly white uh, English public and that it's not necessarily a case of deliberate 
overt racism, but this um, this this underlying unconscious bias in people in, in the way that they perceive uh, people who are different to themselves. As you say, it's important that we don't say this is overt racism. It's not. That's not the point I'm making, as, as, as you allude to. It's, it is this phrase, unconscious bias. I was talking to Chris Lewis last year, the... Uh, the West Indian-born former England all-rounder who'd spent some time in prison for smuggling drugs where he was at a dress rehearsal of a play about his life and he was being in quite reflective mood and talking about a time when he'd scored a double hundred for Nottinghamshire and he walked off the field and he heard one of the members shout, well struck. Now, to, to his ears, that sounded like the kind of phrase that wouldn't necessarily have been used about um, a white batsman, I think, who might have been told, well batted. Now, you know, there might be white listeners listening to this going, well, what is wrong with that? Now, all I can say is what is wrong with it is that Chris Lewis heard something in that phrase and we as white people aren't in a position to, to criticise his reaction to it. And I think um, with Joffre Archer, there was, it was certainly the case that, you know, he, when he was doing well, he, there was, people were full of praise for him. But when he, he could only bowl at 85 miles an hour on that chilly first morning at Old Trafford, people suddenly trotted out the clichés, oh, he's a bit laid back, he's a bit cold, um, why can't he bowl 95 miles an hour all the time? So just a plea really for us to to, to, to be more conscious about the, the, the language we use because we may not hear it, but other people certainly do. So is the idea with Chris Lewis that 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 it was a perception that a black batsman had less finesse or, or less style or craft in, in the way that he went about his batting? Yes, that he he sort of butchered his way to he bludgeoned his way to his his double hundred mm. because I suppose because that's what he thought that that guy who said it thought that that's how black batsmen play mm. um, that it wasn't the kind of compliment that a white batsman would have been paid that that was his point. It's interesting how subtle it can be. Incredibly subtle. I thought it was, I thought it was an excellent point, and it really you know I, I'd like to think I'm reasonably alert to these nuances, but that really was was an extra level, and I and I thought what a what a what a good point it was from Chris. Yeah, it's interesting, Lawrence, that we only really heard about this before the World Cup and and then uh, when England were on tour in New Zealand and South Africa. Not so much when uh, he was winning the World <laughs> Cup in the Super Over or, or when Steve Smith was felled or when uh, when uh, when, he, when he bowled Australia out on the first day at Leeds. Anyway, for another day. Um, great positive story was Test Cricket returning to Pakistan a decade after uh, the, the, the terrible tragedy there when, when Sri Lanka were previously playing Test Cricket. They were the, the first team to, to return and, and play a, a Test match against the Pakistanis on home. Soil. It's a, it's, it's it's big progress in what feels like a comparatively short period of time. When a few years ago this wouldn't have been possible. And again, it was just a short item in the editor's notes, but it was a, a, a something to celebrate. I thought it was. It feels like a celebratory issue. This Wiston, and that that seemed to be um, in, in keeping with that with that mood. Really, um, the, the Pakistan public turned out. Uh, to cheer the team on in Royal Pindi against um, Sri Lanka for that test in December. And, you know, uh, there are as passionate people as talk about the, the game being a religion in India. That's a big cliche. Well, it, it is in Pakistan as well. We've just forgotten that because they haven't been able to play test cricket there for 10 years. You went back and looked at the 1970 World Eleven team, the, the, the status of those matches, which are not formally recognised as test matches. They were recognised in wisdom until 1980. Um, that team could still have a claim to being the best team of test players call it to to ever visit England they toweled up England when they did visit um, they were counted by wisdom for a while they then you decided to be more consistent with everybody else who wasn't counting those as test matches but you're making that argument 50 years later that these should be considered test matches when the 2005 world 11 uh, does qualify as an official test match in ICC records I think that last point is is the important one. If ICC are going to um, deem one of their 
World Eleven games, uh, an official test match. Why? Why aren't they, these five in 1970, which were treated as test matches by everyone, by the player? Gary Sobers, I think, famously said that if it hadn't been sold to him as a test match, he wouldn't have bothered playing. Uh, the public thought it was test matches. Wisdom treated as, as test matches for a decade until they bow to the kind of statistical pressure from from outside, uh, and it does seem like an anomaly. Um, you know, fifty years on seemed like the moment to, to raise that. There's a quirky uh, section here about the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Uh, so you you revisit that Kirribilli House uh, set of remarks that he made in the middle of the bushfires and um, that were poorly received at the time. You describe them as gibberish when he talks about how the, the cricket could help the nation forget what was going on at the time and, and you proceed to um, add that you know obviously that Morrison's positions on climate change haven't exactly covered himself in, in glory over the years but the way you came at this the point you were making was that it shows the position that cricket always holds in the Australian consciousness that the Prime Minister would think to say that in the first place something that you can't quite imagine happening in the United Kingdom. Secretly, you, don't get, you won't get many English cricket fans admitting this, but secretly we're all quite jealous of the, the status that cricket has in Australia. We don't have that in England. You know, f- football is the national sport and cricket is the one that tags along in the summer and occasionally gets some headlines like when Ben Stokes um, goes berserk with the bat. So it, w- it was just striking to, a, to a, a non-Australian how the Prime Minister might try and use the sport to... To, to, to bring the country together. I mean, he did it in a, in a crass way and the, the, the quote I used didn't, didn't make a whole lot of sense. But I could see what he was trying to do and it, it seemed if it were going to dredge any positives from that, that catastrophe, um, it was that maybe cricket could bring the country together. You mentioned Ben Stokes. He was, for England, certainly the story of the summer. You know, Steve Smith dominated the Ashes with the bat more effectively than Stokes did, I guess, but but Stokes was the attention grabber, the headline grabber. The um, you, you couldn't help watching him when he was batting, which you wouldn't necessarily always say was the same with Steve Smith. But uh, there was a callback there where, in your notes last year, you called on Stokes to show some more mongrel on the field and and get stuck into it. Um, he certainly did. You weren't getting suckered into talking about whether his heading the innings was the best innings ever because that's um, maybe somewhat over the top, but you did question whether it might be the best of all time for England and you ended up with uh, a couple of other innings, Ian Botham at Old Trafford and Kevin Peterson at the Oval in 05, where th- those were the two who you thought it might sit alongside. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to take into account all the different um, factors that you you know we, we cricket loves a debate doesn't it and, and what makes a great test innings I think the fact that um, st- it was last chance saloon for England if one more wicket falls and the, the get not only is the game over but the ashes are gone with two tests to go and that that kind of spells disaster for the rest of the the English summer for England fans um, Jack Leach at the other end uh, they needed seventy odd for the last wicket I couldn't call it the best test innings ever because Kusal Pereira had done something almost identical a few months earlier in Durban for Sri Lanka. And I think people tended to forget that in the, the, the we all do it, don't we? The, the thing we've just seen seems like the most remarkable thing ever. But I thought that the, perhaps the fairest way of trying to analyse where, where to place Stokes' innings in, which pantheon was to compare it with other English innings, and, and I put it alongside the two you mentioned. And of course, Stokes was named as the men's leading player of the year. I like how you group Stokes and Pereira together. The fact there's an essay in the book this year about left-handed batsmanship is, is quite appropriate too there from Andy Bull. Um, so that, that sort of brings us to the end of that, that first important section with the editor's notes. In the first section of review, if you like, or of various different essays and writings on the game, you, you leave it to the players. You, you let the England team, the 11 that turned out in the World Cup final, talk about their own memories of, of the Super Over, which I thought was a nice touch. You kind of 
we see a lot of words written about these players and often even ghosted by the, the players, but actually getting their raw words on how they felt on a day which will kind of replay and replay for the rest of their lives, really. Exactly. They sort of got their, their intimate thoughts and emotions and fears and it's funny how many of them reference the 2016 World T20 final when Brathwaite um, hit those four sixes off Stokes and I think four or five of them might have mentioned that they didn't want that to happen again and when Nisham hit that six in the super over off Archer a couple of them thought no surely this isn't this isn't going to happen again there's a nice detail perhaps my favorite detail in all of them is in Johnny Bairstow's where he, he talks about Mark Wood going out to bat with all his gear on and wondering why on earth He's not going to face a ball. We just need him to run two as quickly as possible. Why is he going out in all, all the gear that weighed him down? Maybe that actually, that, you know, that, that could have deprived England of victory there and then. It's, it's a really good point. I mean, are you allowed to go out with no pads and, and no gloves and just take the bat? I think, I, I think you could go out with, uh, I think you have to wear pads probably, but you don't, have, you don't have to wear arm guards, chest guards, helmet. Other things that would have weighed him down, basically. <laughs> um, there's a long essay from Owen Morgan, the English one-day captain, which has been serialised in the Daily Mail in the UK uh, over there as well, where he's he's talking about the makeup of that team, the the multicultural makeup, um, the fact that so many of the players in that team were born in different countries, had different cultures, were able to bring different things to us, um, to that side, and and that's a big part of what he felt made the team work. Um, it's a, a really good piece of writing, but also interesting that it wound up in the Daily Mail, which hasn't always shared those sort of um, views on multiculturalism and immigration, if we could put it that way. Fair point, and, and one or two did point that out on Twitter. The irony of the newspaper it appeared in. Um, of course, I you know I, I work for the Mail. Um, the the way the serialisation happens each year is that newspapers bid or choose not to for for wisdom pieces, and it so happened that the Mail won this year for the first time. The Times, the Telegraph had previously done wisdom serialisations, uh, and the, the the Owen Morgan piece was the first piece that the sports desk, the sports editor, chose chose to go with. So, you know, this, uh, this, the sports desk and the Mail has always been a separate beast from the, the front of the paper, I, I, I would say. Um, yes, I, I accept that, you know, you, you, you could make a point about the irony, but, uh, but I think what they were interested in was, was the fact that you know, we've got an Irish, an Irish-born captain here who considers himself a Londoner. You know, that's how he describes himself, and he he has a very good insight. He has a personal insight and experience of what it's like to be a, a so-called outsider leading a team that's always had uh, foreign-born players in it. You know, the 1992 team that got to the final had something like seven or eight players born outside England in in that team. It's always been the case. It's just that Morgan now, as the captain, having been through that himself wants to celebrate that. He doesn't want to be embarrassed about it. He wants to say it's a source of strength. And it, it always has been. Um, and it, it, was, it was nice that he took that perspective. Mentioned before that Ben Stokes was named the leading cricketer in the world for the first time, knocking off uh, Virat Kohli, who had a hat-trick of wins before that. There's a, there is an essay, though, that touches on Kohli, even though he's not as prominent in the book this year, but Anand Vasu about trying to find the next Kohli uh, in Bangalore. But no, Ben Stokes' ascension to that number one uh, role, if you like, in, in world cricket, following on, of course, from the BBC Sports Personality of the Year, Gong, and a number of other awards, which he, he cleaned up in December last year to finish off 2019. But um, I, I reflected on your passage in the notes last year where you said you kind of wanted to see the mongrel back from Ben Stokes after a couple of lean years with the bat. You wanted to see him sort of take attacks down again and uh, it, it came true in the best possible circumstances for him. Yeah, I and mean, I think when he came back after he'd been uh, quitted in court of, of a fray, there, there was a sense that he was trying to be too responsible with the bat. He almost wanted to show people that he had this other side to his character. And for a while he lost 
I was about to say the punch, that's not the right word, is it? But he lost the, uh, he lost the aggression in his batting. Um, and what happened last year was that the, 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 real ben, the real Ben Stokes, the cricketer, came out again uh, and, and produced a summer that he'll, he'll, he'll always have and that, that, that we'll always have. Elise Perry was the women's leading cricketer of the year. Not surprising, given she took seven for in, in a one-day game in the, in the women's ashes, made 100 and could have had another one in the second innings of the test match that Australia drew to all but guarantee that they'd keep the trophy. Um, and she also got herself a, a spot as one of the Wisden Five Cricketers of the Year. So she's the first women's player to, to be leading cricketer and in the five in the same year in the book. And almost a surprise that she hasn't been one of the five cricketers of the year before, I guess. Fair point. Um, she's, I mean, added to that, she's the first non-English woman to be a Wisden Cricketer of the Year. We've had six six women before, of course, three in one year in 2018 after England won the World Cup the previous summer. So she well, she was a gimme. Um, you know, if you're not going to pick uh, Elise Perry after the summer she had, the English summer she had last year, you're, you're never going to pick her. She is the best woman cricketer ever to play the game and, and it'll be hard to see anyone overtaking her in, in, in years to come. She's an, she's an absolute giant and it was, you know, everyone around the cricket world was, was gutted for her when she got injured in the, the 2020 World Cup and couldn't play in front of that crowd of what was it, 86, 87,000 at the MCG in the final. In terms of uh, the, the the biggest decision you have to make in the book in many respects is the five cricketers of the year, given the, the prestige uh, that um, Hall of Fame, as you describe it, uh, this year has. Um, I remember talking to you, I don't know if we were in Manchester or, or possibly at the Oval at the end of the summer, saying to you, you got a very hard job this year, given it was a Men's World Cup, crazy Ashes series, women's Ashes and, and a county season had plenty going on as well. And you ended up kind of covering that quite nicely. But there was a, a preamble before the five, just acknowledging from your perspective that you could have had Josh Hazelwood, Jack Leach, Jason Roy, Rohit Sharma, Mitchell Stark, even Shakib Al Hassan. You don't mention him there, but um, uh, of course, uh, he, he, uh, there's a broader uh, discussion around Shakib, I suppose, around how he was rubbed out of the game late last year for spot fixing. But um, yes, yeah, just talking us through, uh, talk us through rather, Lawrence, the, just the challenge of how you put it together and whether there was a temptation to either maybe expand it to more this year or focus just on one element of the summer and just how you went about pulling it together. Yeah, you're right. It was the toughest, toughest year I, I've had. I've done nine wisdoms now, and this was this was the hardest because there were so many good candidates. I mean, the five guys you mentioned there, um, I, you know, I felt felt obliged to write an explainer, which we've never done before, just sort of pointing out how it works and how those five would, in any other year, would have been would, worthy winners. Shaki Bel Hassan would have been in that sort of reserve list um, b- before he got involved in in, the, in spot fixing, was banned for corruption. It was a tough one, but you know it, there there have been a couple of years where you might have been rooting around a bit for a fifth. This year we were uh, we were trying to work out who to leave out, and look, not everyone is going to agree with them. That that's part of the beauty of it, and I, I fully expect to be you know slaughtered on Twitter as I as I usually am when the when the five are announced. But that that is part of the fun. It's, it's... Where's Virat Kohli, Lawrence? Yeah, where's well... Steve Smith? Where's Sachin? Oh, God, he can't be chosen more than once, guys. Um, no, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting angry in advance. Um, so, yeah, it was great fun, actually. And the, the, I think the five we've chosen, I'm happy with it. It's a, it's a spread. Some people said will say probably it, it should all have been about the World Cup and the Ashes, but we've always taken county cricket seriously. In recent years, we've taken women's cricket seriously. So Simon Harmer had to go in and Elise Perry had to go in. And, yeah, we've ended up with one England player, which in the year they've won the World Cup, some people may say, hmm, 
interesting, but that you, you don't choose it on that basis. You choose the five worthiest winners of the, the candidates who are available. So you've got Jofra Archer, obviously, for his um, remarkable work across the World Cup and the Ashes. Pat Cummins, who interestingly was the only Australian quick who was guaranteed a spot in in every Ashes Test as they shuffled everybody around. Simon Harmer, the the spinner for Essex, who uh, led them to doing the double, uh, captained their T Twenty uh, title, um, and also helped them win the championship. Mana Slavoskakne, who was such a revelation coming in for Steve Smith and Elise Perry, and I guess Manus is the really interesting one in that obviously if Smith hadn't won it before then Steve Smith would take that spot but Manus filled in for Steve Smith in the ashes and he's filling in for him in the five cricketers of the year in a way having done that really only playing three and a half Ashes test matches plus what he was able to do at Glamorgan in first class cricket earlier in the year yeah absolutely um spoke to him the other night actually uh and I sort of ran the scenario past him how what a, what a crazy sort of few months it's been and he said he was getting goosebumps just thinking about it um he's a guy who still seems to be observing his own progress from the outside almost like in a in a film um and, and he's an absolutely mm. lovely lovely fellow not taking anything for granted still incredibly humble He's got the best batting average in the history of Test cricket, except Don Bradman. So he's got every reason not to be humble, um, but it, but he is, and that's what that's one of the great things about him. And look, I did. I also asked him whether he felt going into the Australian summer that he had slightly unfinished business because he hadn't been able to convert any of the four successive fifties in England into hundreds. And he he thought about it. And he said not really because um, it was such tough. It was so tough to bat in in England that you felt you could get out. Any ball. He mentioned the, the the spell that Ben Stokes bowled to him in the the second innings at, at Heading. Or I can't remember the first or second innings at Headingley when he had him nicked off three times and caught off a no ball. And he said that that was the way it was. So when he got to Australia on slightly flatter pitches, he felt he he felt he'd learned how to concentrate, which was an interesting way of of, of, uh, of putting it. Uh, and of course, he absolutely cashed in and, and broke all kinds of records. So very happy to give it to a, to a lovely guy. Yeah, and, and it just kind of uh, reinforces that point, uh, Lawrence, when you think about where we were sitting 12 months ago, uh, waiting for uh, the dinner. And had any of us said, well, well this, this fellow called Marnus, who plays for Queensland, is going to be a wisdom cricketer of the year, we would have we would have thought one of us had gone mad. So it is, and, and especially given that the, the qualification period is the English summer, it doesn't count that he made all those hundreds uh, at the back of the year in Australia. I mean, it might have helped reinforce your decision but yeah it's a, it's a crazy old story one that'll make a good book one day as will um, the birth of the hundred nice seamless segue uh, Nick Holt though uh, Lawrence has done the almost the all the the, the the building blocks for a perspective book on, on the hundred with his essay birth of the hundred saviour or monster he poses that question off the top but it's warts and all he must have talked to scores of people to assemble it for you it's a very long uh, piece looking at various board meetings decisions taken where the money trail led um, counties that felt aggrieved counties who are able to be talked around and all the rest of it it's a it's a fantastic piece of investigative journalism Holt was a man to go to he's you know he's an excellent reporter gets a lot of stories for the, for the daily telegraph and the nice thing about wisdom is you can go to a reporter and say we want the definitive take and this is the this is the take that will last the t- stand the test of time will be read in years to come and he, he's very happy to do that and as you say he spoke spoke to everyone and really portrayed a picture it wasn't just the story of the hundred it was a story of the way english cricket works and the the nightmare that administrators face when they try to make changes here because you've got 18 first-class counties all with separate business models, all with separate memberships to, to appease and to placate. And, and very rarely do, do, do they all agree on things. So the ECB had to get this over the line somehow. And, and, and Holty's story is, is a story of 
fear and loathing may be too strong an, uh, a description of it, but there is a, is, a, is a degree of that, and he's done a, a terrific job in, in bringing it all together. I hope if, if the 100 goes fear and loathing style, it'll be absolutely amazing. <laughs> Somebody rolls up to a Manchester Originals game, <laughs> pops the boot of the car, and they've got a suitcase in there with the full stash. It's going to be an amazing tournament. Cannot wait. Uh, there's there's a lovely obituary for Bob Willis. Um, I was I was really interested to see the the grief for Bob. I guess who who was you know famously came across as a cantankerous, grumpy character. But there was so much love and affection for Bob Willis, and so many people talking about how affectionate and kind he actually was um, uh, behind playing the character of, of a bit of a grump. But you got Paul Allett to to write that obit. His former England teammate, um, great friend of his, it must be a really difficult choice working out who you get to to write such an important piece. We tried to f- pick a guy who knew him closely. It wasn't just a teammate, but a close friend. And, and Alan and Willis go back years. They commentated on Sky together when it first started and they, they did everything together, family holidays. There's a lovely photo in the book of the two of them having a glass of red just laughing together that they don't know the cameras on them it just captures the, the warmth between them it wouldn't have been italian wine by the way because that was one of the willis's rules never drink italian and he, he kind of educated alet's palate if you like um and there's a nice touch at the start of the piece where alet basically got to bob willis's house seven minutes before he died and he almost missed missed the, that moment because the, the the train was late and, and Bob Willis was a was a great lover, it turns out, Alec reveals in this piece, a great lover of train timetables. Uh, you didn't need you didn't need the Transport for London website. You could just ask Bob when the, the number forty three was leaving or the you know buses as well. Uh, so it was kind of all sorts of weird insights into him. And the other thing you you forget about Bob, what a what a great bowler he was. When when he got to three hundred test wickets, only Fred Truman, Lance Gibbs, and Dennis Lilly had got there before him. So he was in absolutely, mm. uh, you know, great company at the time. Lots of people have passed that landmark since, but he was the fourth man ever, and he did it all on wonky knees. And of course, most famously, Headingley in nineteen eighty one, when he seemed to be in a in a trance for reasons that people have speculated on down the years. But no, a, a lovely guy, and, and Paul really captures that. Uh, a, a, some new space for the Almanac this year via Tanya Aldred. She obviously writes the environment section as well, and we'll come to that a bit later, and she was your book reviewer last year when, when Jeff won the award. But um, uh, Maxine Blythen, who was named the Kent Player of the Year in the women's section, uh, transgender woman, um, she was attacked on Twitter by Katie Hopkins, and then um, all hell kind of broke loose on social media for a couple of days there, defended by... Her captain, Tammy Beaumont, uh, who, of course, is an England player as well. And it really did um, bring this to the boil and this conversation around uh, where transgender women fit into women's sport is going on around the world, of course, at IOC level, not least. And um, I I suppose it might be one of the first times it's appeared in Wisdom, but I suspect it'll be something that comes up time and again. And Tanya's really came at this from all angles. Yeah, I mean, I should start by saying that being attacked by Katie Hopkins on Twitter is a badge of honour. Indeed. And and what Tanya does very sensitively because it's an emotive subject it polarizes opinion it gets people angry in ways that those of us who are outside the de- personal involvement in the debate can't quite understand at times but Tanya's re- really uh, presented it beautifully she spoke to Maxine who who, who was born uh, uh, he never went through male puberty started to live as a woman took estrogen and and transitioned to to a she and um one of the issues she faces is that she's she's six foot four so for those who find her presence in women's cricket ridiculous, they have a kind of very visual fact to, to get their, their teeth into. Now, that she, she's making the point that she never went through male puberty. Other people in the piece will say 
that's beside the point. Um, women born she uh, are at a disadvantage when they, they, they come up against someone who had some kind of male past, if you like. It's a, it's, it's a thorny issue and, and Tanya handles it sensitively and I'd urge anyone to, to, to read it to get to grips with, uh, with the subject. Another 50-year anniversary aside from the World Eleven, is the, uh, the MCC withdrawing their invitation for South Africa to tour um, the, the Stop the 70 tour campaign and it's an interesting one where Wisden was probably on the wrong side of the fence historically when you look back at that. Yeah, Wisdom was, took a bit of an establishment view at the time the, the, the view being that you know, sport and politics don't mix and uh, you know, the UK had strong political ties with South Africa. I mean, no one emerged from that with, with any credit, uh, wisdom included. Um, Colin Schindler's brought this story to life, really, in, in, um, very skillfully. What the, you, you forget that there were the county grounds at the start of 1970 were attacked by protesters. The, the South African rugby team, the Springboks, were touring the British Isles at the time, and they, they turned their attention on the county grounds. They daubed scorecards in paint, and they... They damaged cars. They county grounds put ended up putting up uh, barbed wire. There are pictures of barbed wire at Lords. Colin says it felt like you know with spotlights and barbed wire, it, it would almost gone back to the kind of concentration camps that people had fought so hard to to move away from. That was the irony of it. Of course, in the end, the, the government um, uh, uh, backed down uh, to, to the pressure and cancelled the tour. And uh, they, the South Africans were replaced with the rest of the world team, including uh, wouldn't you guess five South Africans? So perhaps not that much change after all. <laughs> there are a couple of other pieces about, about county grounds which in a way dovetail quite nicely and quite beautifully. I mean, there's, there's Paul Edwards' piece on county outgrounds. Uh, um, Paul's perhaps the, the best possible person you could have called upon for that role given the beautiful way he writes about the county game year on year. But um, they were, of course, used quite a bit last year during the World Cup. They will be again this year in the event that um, the hundreds played and county cricket's played, probably unlikely, but that's certainly how the schedule uh, played it and talking about how sort of how lovely it is to, to go to these secondary county venues. Personally, I was really looking forward to going to Colwyn Bay in, in August to watch Glamorgan play up in North Wales where my family all are. But anyway, not to be this year. Um, but also uh, alongside that is a piece about cricket and mental health by Mark Lawson. And he reflects on, on county grounds and uh, Northamptonshire and Lords as well uh, about being a sanctuary for him in, in overcoming mental illness and depression. As you... As you say that, it, it sort of struck me how that, that they're coming at it from different perspectives. In as much as Paul wants the outgrounds, partly because it packs, uh, you know, they get packed out. Even three, a small crowd of three thousand makes it look busy. And, and Mark Lawson likes going to the the slightly bigger grounds, or Lords, perhaps not so much Wantage Road, but Lords where there aren't so many people, and he can relax. And that was his way of dealing with uh, the, the 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 mental illness he faced, depression, anxiety at a certain time in his life and, and and he found that cricket was a was was balm for the soul so it's a personal piece and a, and a moving one part two lawrence is the wisdom review which covers arts and culture and, and the world at large and so on i was pleased to say i can hand on my book of the year title to previous guests of ours on the final word uh Tim Wigmore and Freddie Wilde, who wrote uh, Cricket 2.0, their book about the history of T20 cricket and the tactics and analysis and data and all the rest of it. Uh, Alex Massey was the book reviewer for this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a modern a modern victor, in a way, isn't it? Um, to to the, the young, very young up-and-coming guys in, in uh, cricket writing circles, writing about the most modern form of the game, if we don't uh, ignore the 100 for a moment. Um, and... Uh, I'm slightly ashamed to confess I haven't yet read it, but I will. But it sounds like an excellent book. And, and Alex 
Alex says it's 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 the deepest dive you could you could wish to have on on the game, and it shows that it's more than just a gimmick. It's not just hit and giggle. There's science behind it. There's 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 um, planning. There's meticulous analysts are uh, employed now by ever any half decent T20 franchise, and they 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 go deep into the subject. So uh, so many congratulations to them. Yeah, Alex describes it as intelligent and absorbing, and I certainly would, would share uh, those sentiments. We had uh, Tim and Freddie on the show to talk about the book last October, so congratulations to the fellas. Um, the Photo of the Year, which is another prestigious award in, in conjunction with the MCC, Gareth Copley, who's uh, one of our amazing colleagues. It's uh, the moment Stokes hits um, Pat Cummins through through the covers for four off the back foot to seal that, that, that miracle at Headingley. And he arches his back and lets out a roar, and um, you can you can just see from his body language and everything, and the crowd behind him that this is one of those moments in Test cricket that, that anyone who's there will never forget. The the media section's one that I turn to pretty quickly each year, Lawrence. It's kind of a must read, isn't it? Because we're all in the cricket media, we want to hear what <laughs> what wisdom has to say. It's pretty scathing this year. I've got to be honest. I mean, Patrick Collins is very critical uh, in in some sections. I think unfairly in in different parts and. I was, I was pondering the, the way in which you go about selecting who writes that and, and I guess the, the process that piece goes through to, to, as far as editing and, and so on, is it essentially the opinion of Patrick in this case just stands or is there a conversation had with uh, you guys at Wisdom HQ and, and how it all comes together? Because it is sort of one of those sections where people do flick to it. There are a few pieces like that where the opinion of the writer has to stand. I mean, you, you commission them because you rate them as a writer. I've always rated Pat incredibly highly. He was a brilliant Mail on Sunday, Chief Sports Writer of the Year's won, I think, five or six Sports Writer of the Year awards and always loved his stuff, very elegant writer. Um, and yeah, he can, he can be scathing. Um, he's written stuff, he's reviewed the books in the past and he's been he's been scathing there. And yeah, you're right, he has been in, in a couple of instances. And But we have to let those opinions stand. I can't turn around to him and say, I'm sorry, I, th- I, I, I think that's a bit unfair. Um, right. Uh, that, that we've we've employed you to write the piece, and, and away you go. Doesn't doesn't mean I agree with everything. It uh, doesn't mean I agree with the the the, the, the barbs he's, he's he's fired. But um, you know, that is the way that piece works. Cricket in the theatre with Hugh uh, Chavillia, who is your of course your co-editor, uh, talking about the Chris Lewis rise and fall that um, play that's been going on around the country over the last year. And then cricket in the environment. Um, we spent a lot of time uh, discussing this with you last year, Lawrence, and the importance of importance of this section. We've had a couple of episodes dedicated to climate change on the Final Word since encouraging uh, that there've been some additional reports done by the Conservation Foundation, other experts in the field who, who who've had on the show um, the horrible Australian fires sort of drew this into focus when uh, we, we were looking at really what's an appropriate schedule for the Australian summer into the future. But encouragingly, as Tanya reports, um, Cricket Australia and the ECB now seem to be paying a lot more attention than they were 12 months ago. They have to really, don't they? I mean, and originally this piece was going to be about air miles and the, the, sh- the, sh- the shocking carbon footprint that cricket tours leave around the world. But then, of course, Australia, the headline of this piece is Australia's burning and Australia began to burn. And we, we, we changed tack of Tanya's suggestion. I mean, she's led the way, really, on the, the environment question in cricket in recent years. And she's done another excellent and, you know, moving job, really. And there's also a, a, a sidebar by Sid Monger on the, the Delhi smog, that, that game between uh, India and Bangladesh, uh, which they played despite the, you know, sickening levels of, of, of air pollution and just raising the question as to w- when cricket will respond uh, to, to, 
to the harm that the players have been caused. And rounding off part two, there's the uh, the cricket and film section, which Jeff wrote, uh, looking at uh, The Edge, who we interviewed Barney Douglas and Felix White on here last year. Cricket fever about the Mumbai IPL uh, franchise. And then the obituaries, of course, Abdul Qadir, who you kind of forget, uh, Lawrence, when, when kind of going back through that uh, this does capture all of 2019. And we were sitting in the press box, I think, at Sydney last year, Jeff, when Abdul Qadir uh, passed away. Uh, so it was uh, good to sort of see that right up front. And, of course, Bob Hawke, uh, who... Um, people don't think of Bob uh, necessarily uh, for his cricket, apart from top edging into his glasses in a uh, in a uh, in the uh, politicians versus press game in 1984. But he did um, turn out for Oxford as 12th man a few times at university when he was a Rhodes Scholar and. He did play for the ACT a, a handful of times in the 50s when he was working for the uh, for the ACTU and then the PM's 11, which he brought back and all the rest of it. So that obituary section does capture a fairly wide group of people who have had a life in cricket. As you say, it starts with Abdul Qadir on, on alphabetical grounds, but that's, that's a strong a strong way. Yeah. He was only 63, which you know seems seems way too young. I mean, Bob Hawke was 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 interesting when he um, he appeared in the 1954 university trial apparently and then the the, the, was, the, the obituary notes though he understandably failed to make a batting lineup that included Colin Cowdery and MJK Smith he, <laughs> he's said to have been 12th man three times so you know good <laughs> enough can't really blame him for missing out there <laughs> Um, part six is overseas cricket, so all the sections you can every single game. I mean, again, the idea of um, the idea of uh, having to harass uh, riders all around the world, myself included, when it came to part six this year with you know the series I was covering as well. I mean, there's a lot of us out there. Um, everyone's doing the best they can, of course, but from from your perspective, that it's, it's a lot of work along the way. I mean, you've got to really be on that for twelve months a year. Yeah, you have, but it, you know it's fun. I get to it means I get to send emails to people and chat to them and see how they're going in their lives, and you make you make friends that way too. I mean, yeah. okay, some, sometimes I have to chase guys adam and jeff but you know it's not it's not <laughs> it's it's a pleasurable it's a pleasurable chasing put it that way Lawrence Booth, uh, you are a very uh, generous guest uh, on this show in the sense that you give us so much of your time. I can't wait to receive the new edition of the book, which will be, what, edition number 157 and having it on my shelf uh, in a matter of days. Uh, it's a, a mighty effort, as you say. It's perhaps one of the most important of your editorship, given how much happened last year, and you've absolutely done it justice. It's an absolute gem. Congratulations, and uh, thanks, Lawrence, again for being uh, such a, a big part of the final word. Hello, I'm Jared Waitley. Join us on the Final Word podcast. This is the Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, the end of another bumper show. Hey, if, if you keep listening to it, we'll keep recording it. Um, we've got nothing better to do, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm still trying to debate whether the uh, debate whether the um, uh, having well with people at home, of course, for the foreseeable future, whether a long podcast is a good thing or a bad thing. But, but look... People are in. People last week. The feedback was go longer. So I don't know whether we've quite gone as long as last week. But oh, as you say, we, we're we're going to keep pushing it. <laughs> it's, yeah, NFL football style. Go long. We're like we are. Don't worry. <laughs> um, thank you to uh, Lawrence Booth, aka Lazar, aka Photo, um, <laughs> for for joining us on the show for for that interview to take us through. The pages of wisdom uh, for the last year, the one that's coming out, you can try to get a hold of the Almanac if you want some serious reading to go with your long podcasts. Uh, And one little piece of housekeeping before we go, Adam. We haven't yet done this week's segment of Happy Birthday, Sachin. Happy Birthday, Sachin. (laughs) Sachin, it's your birthday. Uh, the great man, the great birthday tweeter of all time, the the man with a spreadsheet with a million birthdays on it. Every day he gets up, 
consults the stars, works out whose birthday it is. Um, only one since last time we did Happy Birthday, Sachin, though, because he's been busy with other things, Adam. He's been, uh, he's been tweeting out uh, about sanitation workers in India and encouraging people to stay home and do their social distancing bit to try to head off uh, coronavirus ripping through India, which is a terrifying prospect. Yeah, that, that's right. So the, 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 there's one birthday tweet. We we do give Sachin a bit of shit for his Twitter account. We're not the only people that that, that, that enjoy that. But um, fair play to him. He's turned his Twitter account almost exclusively into a service to tell people to fucking stay home and um, <laughs> and to and to support sanitation workers and acknowledge the the crucial um, work that they're, they're doing to to keep Indians safe. So um, well played, Sachin. Happy birthday, Sachin. Yeah, but we do have a, a birthday tweet for Krunal Pandya, of course, yes. the, the all-rounder, the brother, brother of Hardik, who played at Sachin's beloved Mumbai Indians, um, or still plays there, has, has played for India as well. Spins the ball, hits it a mile. Krunal Pandya, happy birthday, Sachin, for you. But that's the only one in the last couple of weeks. And just a couple of final reminders. We mentioned it before the interview, but there'll be other final word um, podcasts in the feed next few weeks. So there'll be, the, uh, as I said, the, uh, the encore edition of the interviews. I think the first one will roll out Jeff will be Harsha Bogley so if you didn't hear our chat with the great man Harsha I think it was in December 2018 we'll, we'll have that up on the feed for some weekend listening um, we'll have some nerd pledge on that episode as well so um, if you have heard Harsha but you want to hear us rattle off a, a little bit of nerd pledge we'll, we'll do that off off the top and then the, the calling the shots um, a show that, I, that I've mentioned a couple of times now which has already been in the feed with the preview app um, that'll be up and going by the 17th of April so lots of final word uh, to get you through the isolation slash lockdown period that is what we're going to be doing uh, thank you to Bad Producer a production company who get us through DC, Jay, Astrid who do all the work behind the scenes to get the show up uh, thanks to satphoneshop.com go and check them out thanks to Seabus Super uh, and thanks most especially to everyone on the patron page who supports us the number of people we've had sign up the last couple of weeks has been just astonishing we, we feel really quite emotional about it um, to have this very a pragmatic real world show of support for the show to make sure that that we keep uh, being able to do it and we are absolutely going to do that this has been another episode of the final word i'm jeff lemon adam collins alongside me and uh, we shall see you the next time we turn the microphone i had to go about it